0: Welcome to the St. George's Lead Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the talk.
1: This evening, we are thinking about the first few chapters of Exodus. I don't know how many of us here have read Exodus, are familiar with it. Um, The title of this book as we have it now, uh, the Greek version, uh, is just the word for the first few words of this book, Um, the road out of. Um, These are the names of the people who went out of Egypt. And the Hebrew name for this book means, um, and these are the names, as in just how the book starts. So these are the names of those who walked the road out of Egypt. And uh, although biblical scholars and archaeologists argue about various aspects of Israel's exodus from Egypt, uh, many agree that the the exodus occurred in some form or other, what we're reading about here. So the question, did the exodus happen, becomes when did the exodus happen, and there's a couple of camps for that. Um, And then a question that follows for us as followers of Jesus, who trust the Bible as authoritative and as the big story of the world and us and God, we then ask, well, what was the Exodus for? And so as I've been looking at this Series and thinking uh, with the other uh, preachers about it, there's been a number of things and books that have helped me. One is this amazing commentary called The Abiding Presence, which is my Lent reading, and it's by um, an Old Testament scholar called Mark Scarlatta. And uh, he helped me think about this as we go into the book of Exodus, and it's how we read scripture a lot together in church. Is that we're reading Exodus in this series in its final form, concentrating on the theological meaning of the story as it's been handed down to us by the sacred authors of scripture. And the Exodus, uh, Scarlatta says, with the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is history created for the sake of theology. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, as we understand history now, but it has a purpose. So the events are recorded through the lens of divine human relationships, and particularly the relationship of God and Israel. So we're now going to be hearing it as the salvation story that it tells us, and we'll be looking at the whole of the book together. And again, he says, the theological intent of the authors, their motivation, was to inspire later generations of Israelites to obedience, trust, and hope in the God who is faithful to his covenantal promises. And that's the same for us. That this is to inspire us to obedience, trust, and hope in the God who is faithful His promises. So the book of Exodus has 40 chapters. There are 40 days in Lent. So you could choose to read Exodus one chapter a day throughout Lent and you would have read the whole thing. You could read or listen to two chapters a day and you will have listened to it. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Or you could read three chapters a day and you would read the whole thing three times, once, twice three times in Exodus. Uh, So I encourage you to do whatever um, works for you, but at least once through this Lent. And some of you will have seen from our small groups that um, we've got this book, The Way of the Desert, that journeys through Exodus, focusing on the desert wilderness times, which is often what we don't focus on when uh, this is preached on in churches, as a focus for thinking about almost the first Lent, the Exodus in the desert, and then reflecting on Jesus in the desert later. And so as we read Exodus together... Uh, for me, it's helped me to think about it a bit like an origin story. I don't know about you, but we love origin stories in our time, uh, often in superhero films, uh, to varying degrees of success, I think. There are some great ones, and then some ones we think they shouldn't have bothered making it. Uh, but we relate to them on a human level, and we see the story repeated in humanity, And often, the more specific that story, the more universal it seems to feel to us. So we know that Exodus was written as a living word to God's people so that it has relevance for us today. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we also read it through the lens of Christ, the new and fulfilled promise of God. So for the church... Exodus is almost the divine origin story of the freedom we have in Christ. But we'll also be careful during this series to read it in its original context too, not just jumping to Jesus, but taking in the Jewish roots. Lots of you will know that I am a fan of the Bible Project, and it's a really good way of getting into the Bible. Lots of videos online and podcasts Um, And they say the Exodus event, when Moses and Aaron led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, is referred to more than any other event in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as the primary way to understand God's nature and character. So as we read this book together, this account, we are reading with the other readers and writers of Scripture. Scripture. And we read it in Lent, not by accident, but remembering that Jesus, after being baptized in the River Jordan and in childhood making a detour through Egypt, was led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights at the beginning of his public ministry. Likely, he was praying and fasting and meditating on the book of Deuteronomy, on the teaching of Moses. We can... uh, think that because of the responses he had to temptation in the wilderness and the scripture that he quoted. And perhaps Jesus was reflecting on this story of Exodus as he thought about his vocation in his life. So an origin story needs a main protagonist, so we have Moses. So we're going to meet the character of Moses who we just heard about. And one thing to say in this uh, book is that Moses is not chosen to lead God's people out of slavery because he is extraordinary and amazing and skilled. We don't even really know why it's Moses. But we do know from Scripture that God seems to work through the particular and the specific for the good of the whole. He chooses a few and he blesses the whole. But we see that Moses' experience does give him a unique perspective to see God at work. He knows the world and the lens of the Egyptian ruling powers. It's been his home in his childhood. And then he knows the Hebrew people, his people, that he grows up to realize that he is part of. We also see that although we meet Moses as a baby, this story covers the whole of his life. The first part, when he's in Egypt, he uh, reaches about the age of 40. And then, 40 to 80 years, he's in Midian, in the desert, in the wilderness, thinking and processing who he is, called by God. And then it's in his 80s that he leads people in the Exodus. So if we're here thinking now, I'm in my 20s and I'm in my 30s, you know, what do what you want me to do, God? Where to go now? Um, think about Moses. Uh, think about your first, you know, 30, 40 years. Might be God preparing us for stuff and building us to be more like him. So we've heard a bit of that. We're going to watch a recap now from the Bible Project, just a couple of minutes. These videos are really helpful to so let it uh, summarize for us, and you might want to go and watch the rest of it later on.
2: The book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now Jacob's 11th son Joseph had been elevated to second in command over Egypt and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh the king of Egypt offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video we'll just focus on the first half where centuries have passed and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and they filled the land. Now this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket, and so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites.
1: Everyone got that? So luckily, it's online, and you can uh, watch that and talk about it and follow it, uh, but it's a helpful summary. So we meet Moses at the beginning of this book, and we're going to meet Yahweh, God, personally, in a little bit. Uh, and as I've been reflecting on the person of Moses, it's easy for us to read books like this from Scripture and think, Moses, a big biblical hero, one of the greats. Um, picked by God, amazing, without delving into their life and how human the Bible is and what their life was like. Um, and I think in our culture now, I wonder whether you agree, but I think we are increasingly interested in and open to understanding ourselves and how we've been shaped and formed by our experiences, our childhood good or bad things have happened to us. And we are arguably better at talking about mental well-being. Um, I've been listening recently to a great podcast called The Diary of a CEO. don't know if you've listened to it at all. Uh, with uh, Stephen Bartlett, who's like a 30-year-old self-made millionaire, uh, kind of techie business guy. And he interviews people who we might think are significant or a self-made Um, with quite an in-depth interview there's a great one with Ramesh Ranganathan the comedian uh, recently and actually for an interview he listens really well he asks interesting questions and they dive into what has helped them become the person that they are and I think Moses would be an excellent guest on this show he's the kind of guy that they would talk to Because he has this uh, troubled, difficult childhood and upbringing, and then he becomes this person used for amazing things by God. Uh, And in a book that looks at Moses through the lens of leadership, strengthening the soul of your leadership, it's a great book, it just comments uh, on how Moses was this human character with human experiences, and you heard in that passage uh, Moses is born into a time when it was really unsafe. Uh, Pharaoh was out to kill the young boys uh, because they threatened his authority. He was uh, arguably abandoned by his mother even though it was to save his life. He was found and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and then in a twist was cared for by his birth mother and sister. Um, and so uh, the author here says, even though this was a fairly happy ending and one that contains a lot of evidence of God's grace, it's still made for a convoluted childhood by today's therapeutic standards. While it's good to be careful not to go too far in imposing our contemporary meanings onto ancient texts, we can at least acknowledge that Moses' early childhood experiences were quite traumatic by any standard he lived between two worlds and he was not fully at home in either Moses probably had a bit of a chip on his shoulder because he always had something to prove and we see in that passage that we heard uh, Moses processing and anger came out in the worst possible outcome because he killed someone in his anger And so we meet Moses, the man, later on, um, after he had had solitude and time, away from his upbringing in the desert, away from the limelight. And it was a key part of Moses dealing with his past. In that time of solitude, and then meeting others away from his background, and later on, we hear the person uh, called Jethro, who was uh, his father-in-law, who helped him think about things. Moses... Settle down with himself and later in God's presence in that solitude. And I think we need time to do that ourselves and we can identify with Moses, maybe. It's why we spend time here each week in God's presence and we can do that every day, whether alone or in groups. It's a good chance in uh, Lent to reset that. By the time Moses returns to Egypt, Having wrestled with and questioned God five times as to whether he was the right guy for the job in the next few chapters, Moses has integrated his experiences into his life with God and with others to now go forward in who God has made him to be. I've been reflecting on this with our stories and our experiences learning from Moses Because we all have origin stories, we all have experiences, hurts and offences, damaging things, really good things that happen to us and around us. And those things in our lives, I think at best, we are able to empathize with others and understand that all of us have origin stories and that speaking about them in helpful places, processing our experiences is really helpful and healthy as we seek to mature as people. We take responsibility for ourselves and God in community and we reckon with ourselves, knowing our strengths and weaknesses, looking to surrender ourselves to God and serve others. And our culture, I think, is open to that now. But at worst, I think if we remain in the center of our big story that we are living. Our stories and our experiences can almost, and even our difficult experiences, can almost become idols. And we'll read about idols later in Exodus. That we go over and over. That we share broadly without thinking wisely where we're taking them to. And that maybe even become excuses for how we later behave. I want to be clear when I talk about this, that if difficult things have happened to you and around you, God knows and sees and cares. And so do we. It doesn't mean those things were sent from God or that they are okay they're justified to happen because... Um, they might work out in the end what I'm suggesting is that in, in God's great love and mercy and power and sovereignty God over anyone else and especially ourselves can redeem and heal and form us through our experiences and use us powerfully in the kingdom of God filling us with the Holy Spirit Moses needed an encounter with God, time in the wilderness in solitude, and good people around him to process who he was and who he was being called to be. We need those wise people around us too. Yes, friends walking along in the same stage as life, but also life for other people as well. Loving people, truthful people, to help us process our stuff and point us to God. Moses, although having a very difficult upbringing with his family and with his surroundings that tried to harm him, later had people like Jethro who will encounter, who could speak honestly with him. And I want to say this: um, Paul says in the Apostle Paul in Scripture sometimes says, "I am not the Lord." Now I'm not writing Scripture either, as Paul, but I just want to say from my kind of pastor's heart, in having spoken to lots of different people over the years, I want to say that God wants to heal and restore you and integrate your experiences into you as a whole person because he loves you. It's my conviction that God doesn't send bad stuff or redeem stuff just so that we have a testimony to share. God is bigger than that. Inevitably, our testimony is powerful. It glorifies God as to what he's done in our life. It reminds others who he is. It shows imagination for what God can do. But I've spoken to many people over the years when difficult things are happening, um, going through things, no, we can't go around them, we have to go through, who say "At at least one day I'll understand why this happened to me. And I'll be able to share it. And someone will get something out of it. Maybe one day you will have a broader perspective on it, one of thankfulness, maybe even some understanding and perspective. You will probably have a testimony, and that will encourage people. But I want to say that God will heal you and restore you because he loves you, full stop. Because he is Yahweh the personal promise-keeping God who we encounter in chapter 3, whose nature is to heal and redeem and restore and pursue you in love. The testimony is a bonus. It's fruit of God's kingdom at work. And of course, God, in his mercy, will use it if it's right to share it in the future. But it's not the end goal. Relationship with Yahweh is the goal. And Moses had this. He's called a friend of God, someone who spoke to God face to face towards the end of his life. But he also needed an encounter with God. So we're going to hear uh, a few verses of the next chapter now in Exodus 3, and just hear what happens to him, that he stands on holy ground, that he knows God's presence is around him, and he learns God's personal name. Thanks, Jonah.
0: Uh, So this is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, uh, Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a burning bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire it did not burn up so moses thought i'll go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up when the lord when the lord saw that he had gone over to look he called to him from within the bush moses moses and god and moses said here i am do not come any closer god said take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground then he said I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Nailed it. And now the cry, now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, to my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: be to God. So we've met Moses, we've heard his story, his early story and how he then responds to God's call, but in order to do that, he has an encounter with God. And we see here that he knows uh, the God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob, um, and there's, there's that sense of knowing creator God, um, but until now, God has not revealed his personal name and character to his people and when Moses is wrestling with God and says, how will they know that you've sent me? Um, what's your name? God says, God graciously reveals who he is and says, I am who I am. Which is kind of like a mic drop thing, isn't it? It's just like, who are you? I am. I mean, that would be weird if people said it to us now. Um, but names, particularly in scripture, communicate the nature of a relationship. So we wouldn't call just any older man, dad. That'd be weird, right? Yes, your nervous laughter indicates it'll be weird. Or we wouldn't meet someone and after the first time of meeting them, give them a term of endearment or a nickname. Um, But here we learn God's personal name, Yahweh. We've already sung it this this evening. So God, we use God a lot in our culture and across the world. That's not God's name, uh, just like um, it's a title, and that comes through in the word Elohim or Lord uh, in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Just like human is a category, but it's not a name. And so that, that we get Yahweh from the uh, consonants of Hebrew that spell that name. It's how things are spelt in Hebrew. And this name is connected to God's covenant promises with humanity. It means I am who I am, I will be who I will be. It's a statement of being and existence without qualifiers we often sing in um, what a beautiful name that worship song you have no rival you have no equal there's no mention of source or origin God Yahweh is and he wants to be known as the God who listens to his people we heard and who acts to bring about freedom so we now know God's personal name Later on in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself multiple times by the Greek version of his name, Ego Imi, which means I am who I am, identifying himself with the very presence of God. And we learn in the New Testament, as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, that Yahweh's name would be holy. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer. We'll pray it in a moment. And that to honor Yahweh is to act and live and trust in the character of God, to display God's character in the world. And as we go through this book, um, we won't outline it all now, but you will see origin story and spoilers, guys. Spoilers for the plot. Uh, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus becomes the new Israel, the people that don't reject God and go into the wilderness Um, but follow through. Jesus is the very presence of God, Yahweh, in person. Jesus is the great high priest. And Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that we will later read about in the Passover. Even in Moses' early life, there are then echoes of that in Jesus' life. This is our origin story of freedom. And the more we delve into this, the more the New Testament will come to life as well. So we're in this period of Lent, and in a moment we will share communion together, uh, which recalls this story of freedom as well. We've met Moses, and some of us might identify with some of the things in his life, or just acknowledge that the characters that we read about in Scripture are real people who had real stories who are very, very human and flawed, yet God redeems, and God does that because that is his character. And then we meet Yahweh, the promise-keeping God who hears the cries of his people and comes to rescue them. And it might be that this Lent, God is inviting you to recall those events of freedom and to spend time in solitude, in prayer, wrestling with God and reckoning with ourselves and hearing his call again. And that he will act in our lives and redeem and restore and renew because he loves you. And he will use it for his glory in God's kingdom.
0: Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.